Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning comes from Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 23. We are slowly coming to an end of the book of Leviticus. We have uh, just a few more chapters after this. Leviticus 24, verses 9, verses 10 through 23. Before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do long to, to know you. We long to draw near to you. We long to be close to you. You are the one who made all things by the word of your power, and you are the one who is at work in our hearts by your word, by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would work in us this morning, that you would give us a clear sight of our Savior, that you would draw us closer to him, and in him draw us closer to you, our Father. Father, glorify yourself uh, this morning through this text in Leviticus, through your word going forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 23. This is God's word. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelumith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. We are, all of us, divided. On a basic level, that's true just because of the, the nature of life, right? I mean, we're divided between family and work, between school and friends. Uh, we have different classes to go to, different projects, different clients. Uh, there's kind of an unavoidable division to life. But there's also a deeper division, a division of loves and loyalties, a division of allegiances. And that division tears us in pieces. We feel a never-ending tug of war with our souls caught in the middle. We want to be made whole. We want peace but we don't pursue it because peace and wholeness have a cost. 
Now, this little story in front of us this morning is really an amazing story. And I think we are meant to so identify with the Egyptian uh, that we weep for him, even as we know and truly believe that his sentence is, is just. I think we're meant to, to, to be torn by the passage, but it's a, a tearing that actually will make us whole. And I, as I wrestled with this uh, obscure little story this week, the detail that convinced me that I was finally on the right track to understanding it was the name in the story. Now, the, the story is about a, a man who cursed the name, that is God's name, but there's another name given in the story. It's really a story about two names. You know, there are no extraneous details in Scripture. The writers of Scripture are selective in what they include and what they don't include. You'll notice Moses does not tell us the name of this man, the man who is ultimately put to death, but he does tell us the name of the boy's mother, Shelomith, daughter of debris of the tribe of Dan. And the question is, what does Shelomith, daughter of debris of the tribe of Dan, mean? Why did Moses include this little bit of detail in this story? And actually, when you begin to research her name, it's pretty interesting. Shalomith comes from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning, among other things, peace or wholeness. Debris means my word. And Dan, who was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Dan means judgment. And so Shelomith, daughter of debris of the tribe of Dan, means peace, daughter of my word, word of the tribe of judgment. Peace and wholeness come through God's word of judgment in this passage. That's the cost of wholeness. You see our outline this morning, it's on the back of your bulletin. We're going to start out by talking about Hallowed Be Thy Name, and then Egypt in the Camp, Peace, the Daughter of Judgment, Identifying with Egypt, and then Wholeness, Exalting One Name. So first we'll start out talking about Hallowed Be Thy Name. We'll start with the background uh, to God's name, because the story doesn't really make sense apart from understanding the holiness of God's name. Leviticus has stressed the holiness of three things, really, throughout the book of Leviticus. The sanctuary, the Sabbath, and God's name. And these are each, in the theology of Leviticus, they're each access points into God's presence. God's holy place, God's holy day, God's holy name. And the name is closely associated throughout Scripture with the sanctuary. In Deuteronomy, God says that he will cause his name to dwell in Jerusalem in the temple. And then later on, Solomon builds a temple for God's name. See, rather than setting up idols in their temple, Israel had access to their father by calling on his name. And yet it goes back even, even before the tabernacle, before the temple, before Israel... Uh, way back in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis 4, uh, you may know, we find uh, the, the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And then uh, we find Cain's godless descendants listed in his genealogy. But at the end of that chapter, we find a little bit about the line of Seth. Now, Seth is um, the son given to Adam and Eve who, who replaces Abel, so to speak. And we're told that in Seth's days, 
people began to call on the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 4, the very end there. People began to call on the name of the Lord. See, calling on the name of the Lord is sort of the quintessential act of worship. To cry out to the Father for mercy. To call on God's name is to invoke God. is to call to Him for help. is to seek His presence. It's, it's God's name in one sense that gives us access to His throne of grace. Names are intimate things. Uh, I mean, in, in our context, we typically have two or more names. Our last name is for kind of formal occasions, you know, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Smith. But our first name is for more intimate, more personal occasions. You know, only in Jane Austen novels do lovers call one another Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennet. Uh, but a name is a connection to someone. You, you, you get real close, right, and you get nicknames, pet names, which are, are kind of even more intimate. Our, our youngest son, Jeremiah James Hershey, right? We, we call him pretty much anything but Jeremiah James Hershey. <laughs> to know someone's name, it, it, to call them by name, is already a certain level of intimacy. God gives us his name that we might call on him, right? Our access to our Father is through his name. And yet a name is more than just a name. A name in Scripture implies reputation. It implies glory. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And, and what that proverb is talking about is, is a reputation. A good reputation is to be chosen rather than great riches. See, God's name stands for His glory, His reputation. God's name is shorthand for everything that makes up the greatness of God. We were made to find our greatest joy in the glory of God which His name represents. The name of God should be music to our ears and sweetness to our souls and joy to our hearts. That is what we were made for. And apart from this joy, our hearts will ultimately remain empty. All other joy should pale in comparison to hearing the name of our great God. His glory, right, the exaltation of His name should be our great goal in life. The question is, why isn't that the case? I mean, you know what it's like when you, when you fall in love, uh, the person's very name makes your heart swoon, right? And so you, you start saying it out loud just so you can hear it. Why doesn't God's name cause our hearts to swoon? And the short answer is because very often another name has gripped our hearts, our own. Which brings us to our next point, Egypt in the camp. You know, throughout Leviticus, God has been explaining what holiness looks like. God wants his people Israel to dwell with him. And he warns them back in Leviticus chapter 18 not to be like the nations around them. Not to be like the Egyptians, not to be like the Canaanites, but to be holy as God is holy. And as we're moving through Leviticus, we get to chapter 24, verse 10, and verse 10 is an interruption. Verse 10 says, now an Israelite woman's son. And that's odd. That's odd because it comes out of nowhere. I mean, we've had nothing but laws for 13 solid chapters. And suddenly, God sits us down for story time. 
And not only is the verse an interruption, but there's an interruption in the verse. Verse 10 reads, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And, and the phrase in the middle there, it's actually even more jarring in Hebrew. It, it interrupts the syntax of the sentence. And so in English, it might sound like this. Now an Israelite woman's son, oh, by the way, his father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. It's not really a comfortable sentence, right? And that's the point. Notice the sentence begins with an Israelite woman's son, and it ends with the sons, translated uh, the people of Israel. And what's right in the middle of the sentence? Egypt. There's an Egyptian in the midst of the camp. An Egyptian is in the camp. And this should be disconcerting, right? This is a problem. God had just brought his people, uh, Israel, out of Egypt, but apparently Egypt is still in Israel. God just said, don't be like those Egyptians, right? You're my kids, don't be like them. But here is one who is like his earthly father, Egypt, rather than being like the heavenly father, Yahweh. An Egyptian is in the camp. And what happens to this man of Egypt, right? Still the same verse, verse 10, but sentence two, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. Notice, interestingly, the distance there. The Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel, right? This guy's not a man of Israel. He is of Egypt. What does the presence of Egypt in the camp bring? Well, it brings violence. Conflict breaks out, right? Maybe it's a physical fight between these two men. Why do they fight? Well, we don't know. Actually, we're not told why they fight. We're just told that a fight happens. And yet we do know why all fights start. Uh, we heard it earlier in the book of James. James tells us in James 4, he says, what causes fights or what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says, conflict comes from self-interest. This Israelite woman's son uh, not only came out and picked a fight, but then we have in verse 11, the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Now, if they weren't already, this is where things get interesting. Uh, here's an Egyptian man living out of self-interest, and in the midst of this fight, he blasphemes the name and curses it. Now, the word blaspheme here, it's kind of an odd word. It actually means to pierce. I don't know how it came to mean blaspheme, but that's what words do, right? They change with meaning over time. But uh, the word blaspheme means to pierce, and curse uh, means to wish ill upon another, to treat someone lightly. So here's what's going on. By blaspheming, the Egyptian man is declaring his fundamental commitment. He is saying what James has already told us. He's saying, my commitment is to my glory. He doesn't care about God's name. He, he belittles that, he blasphemes that, he pierces that, he puts that down, he treats it as a light, trivial thing. He doesn't care about God's name, he cares about his own. And he's exposing the, really what is really the root of his violent behavior, an unwillingness to honor God as God, a desire to put himself first before God and men. And think about it as, as we think about Egypt throughout Scripture, as we think about it in the Exodus, what does Egypt stand for? Egypt is a place of power, a place of authority, a place of status. 
Pharaoh is building, his na- building a name for himself on the back of slaves. Whenever we put ourselves first, whenever we seek our own name, conflict is the result. If God's name is not supreme, then my name, my glory, must be fought for, and a struggle begins. Sometimes that struggle is all internal, a restless drive to do, right, an exhausting standard of perfection so we can prove ourselves, so we can make a name for ourselves. Sometimes it's a constant voice in our heads that takes offense at everything that other people do. Because we so want people to love us, we are insulted when their world doesn't revolve around ours. Sometimes we turn in on ourselves. We sort of criticize every sentence we speak, worrying that we don't sound as smart or as funny or as caring as we wish we sounded, and wondering if anyone else is noticing. Sometimes this glory struggle is external, right? It's my glory against yours. And I've not only got to prove myself, but I've got to prove that I'm better than you. Often, as with Pharaoh, the glory struggle ends in oppression or with this Egyptian man, with fighting, with violence. The question for us is, how much of Egypt is still in my heart? How much do you think about proving yourself or being approved of by others? Or what drives your uh, perfectionism or your restlessness or your work habits or your people-pleasing? Do you rejoice when others do well? Or do you secretly wish it were you gaining the accolades of the social elites? Well, the people are so shocked by this Egyptian man's blasphemy that they essentially arrest him until Moses should tell them what to do with this man. And the end of the story is that the person is to be stoned to death. The question that comes to our mind is, what has this man done that was so bad? It all has to do with God's name, doesn't it? There is a a battle going on, a battle of glories, right? Will, Will God's glory be seen for all that it is? Will his name be music to our weary souls? Or will the glory or our reputation or our name drive us to exhaustion? What is going to rule our hearts? Which brings us to our next point, which is peace, the daughter of judgment. You know, the Egyptian man stepped out of his home into the midst of the camp of Israel And the battle began to rage, and there were casualties. The first casualty was God's name itself. Now, one commentator uh, working through this passage said, it is blasphemous to think that blasphemy harms God. And that's true, right? God cannot be harmed. Uh, The sum total of his greatness is infinite, right? It can neither increase or decrease. Yet God's reputation in the world does wax and wane, with the clarity of the church's sight. And yet commentators wrestle. They they wrestle with the connection between this story in verses 10 through uh, 15 or 16 and the laws at the end of this story in verses 16 through 22. And the question is, what do these laws have to do with this story? Notice the laws uh, at, at the center of this section They center on this well-known phrase in verse 20, which is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, something you've probably heard before. Now, the point of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, without going into it too much, the, the point is not what we often assume. It's not, uh, as someone has done to you, so you can do to them. 
In fact, that was the abuse that Jesus dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount. But the, the point of these laws is actually to restrain our bloodlust for unbridled revenge in a court of law. Uh, the, the point is that the punishment should fit the crime. Typically in Israel, what that, what that actually looked like was, what that meant was the restitution should be fair. If I knock out your tooth, I pay money uh, that is commensurate somehow to your tooth being knocked out. Not, you knock out my tooth, which really does neither of us any good. See, the eye-for-eye principle is about just restitution. It's about restoring in some way what has been taken. The principle was actually only literally enforced in Israel for murder. Because, of course, there is no restitution for murder. If you kill someone, there's, there's nothing you can give to the relatives of that person to make up for what you've done. And so the eye-for-eye eye phrase had to do with commensurate restitution, except when no commensurate restitution could be found. And here's where it gets odd, uh, because the explanation for stoning this man is found in these laws. It, so the explanation for stoning this man is fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't quite make sense to me. The man blasphemed. He pierced God's name. And as a result, he was stoned to death. The question is, however, is there restitution that can be made when God's name is dishonored? And the answer of the text is no. God's name is, is just that valuable. That's what we miss here. That's why this story troubles us so much. We think blaspheming God's name is not that big of a deal. Could it be that God's name, that God's glory, could it be that God's name, God's glory is actually of more value than a human life? That just, that doesn't make sense to us, right? That makes us a bit uncomfortable. Is it possible that the only way to restore God's honor is through the death of the one who dishonored God in the first place? Well, some would say there's actually, there's, there's a little more going on, not less, but more going on in this passage, which brings us to a, a second casualty, right, of this man's sin, which is the community. You know, when one lone Egyptian stepped into the camp, immediately we have the breakdown of peace, right? Violence and fighting and discord. And uh, there's uh, one Jewish commentator, uh, a guy named uh, Jonathan Sachs, who says that uh, blasphemy against the sacred inevitably leads to the breakdown of the social. He puts it like this. He says, when human beings lose respect for God, they eventually lose respect for humanity. Therefore, the way to defend humanity is to make sure people never lose their respect for God. Does blasphemy injure God? No, the very idea is blasphemous. God cannot be injured, but humanity can. Blasphemy injures society by desecrating the sacred. You see, according to Rabbi Sachs, it says if you lose your sense of the sacred, you will ultimately lose your respect for humanity, and society will break down. Think of it this way, right? When we're all seeking the glory of God's name, uh, there will be harmony, there will be peace, there will be wholeness to the community. We're all seeking the same thing. We all have the same end, the same goals. But if I disregard the glory of God's name, and I'm seeking the glory of my own name, well, then there's instantly conflict. 
between God's glory and mine. And of course, if you also are seeking your own glory, your own reputation, then there's conflict between you and me. Each of us seeking to make ourselves look good to, remain, to maintain our own reputation and honor. Now, th- this may not look like big things. We think of glory-seeking as sort of big, boastful arrogance, but it's often not. It may be very small, subtle things, like, I- I'm afraid of what you will think of me, so I avoid saying the hard things in our relationship. Of course, as a result, neither of us is forced to rely more fully on Jesus' grace through that difficulty. And so neither of us sees the glory of Jesus for all that it is. And so by maintaining our own reputation, even in little, subtle ways, we actually end up diminishing God's. Now, in this case, the the laws at the end uh, are, are not about harm to God's name, but about the the inevitable harm to the community when God's name is dishonored. Dishonoring God's name brings violence. As Sachs says elsewhere, a, a sense of the sacred is what lifts us above instinct and protects us from our dysfunctional drives. What begins with dishonoring God ends by desecrating humanity. God's name had to be honored both for the glory of God and for the good of the community. The only way to honor it was to punish the one who belittled it. So the death of this man restored peace to the camp and honor to God. Which really brings us to a third casualty from his behavior, which is the Egyptian man himself. Right? Defamation of God's character is a harm, apparently without possible commensurate restitution. This is something that called for swift and, uh, a swift and serious response. God takes his name seriously. And God takes the wholeness and the peace of his world seriously. And so those who undermine it are judged. Now, a a simple way of putting this, maybe a a clearer way of putting this, is that self-interest must die if peace is to be had. Right? That's true in the community. That's true in our hearts, right? Self-interest must die if peace, if wholeness is to be had. Self-interest brings division and discord. Self-interest must be put to death if peace is to be had. Now, now we're sympathetic to the Egyptian. We're sympathetic because we too are divided. The obvious problem, as you may well be aware, is that there is more uh, that, that we are more Egyptian than we are Israelite. In fact, most Israelites were more Egyptian than they were Israelite. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our actions don't accurately reflect the Father's glory. We have not delighted in it. We have not displayed it. We have uh, have actively worked, worked against it by trying to exalt ourselves in God's place. And the wages of sin, we are told, is death. Someone has to die, which brings us then to the next point which is identifying with Egypt. You know, the connections between the gospel and this story are richer than you might at first guess. Think again about the Egyptian man. First, his his parentage, right? He's the son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian man. In Judaism, there was one who was called a, 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 I'm going to get this word wrong, I'm going to butcher it, but it's uh, Mamzer, I think is the way you pronounce it, Mamzer. was one who was born of a forbidden union. You see it in Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. 
which says, no one born of a forbidden union, no mom's heir, may enter the assembly of the Lord. This boy would be considered a mom's heir, unclean. His father was an Egyptian after all. And many people know the sense of shame that comes from, from not having the right pedigree, from being blacklisted from birth, as this boy surely was. This kid started out being of mixed race and therefore in Israel uh, most likely unwanted and unloved. And second, think about his actions, right? He's a blasphemer. He's despising God's name. He's uh, damaging God's reputation. He's defaming God's glory. He's piercing it through, as the Hebrew word implies. Well, enter Jesus. Right? Jesus comes into the world. He doesn't seek his own glory, but he seeks the glory of the Father. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus laid aside his glory and took the form of a servant. And like the Egyptian, though, Jesus' parentage, too, is in question. And now we know that, that Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin. And that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We confessed it together this morning in the Apostles' Creed. But in his day, Jesus was actually likely considered a bastard, an illegitimate child. John 8, 41, the religious leaders say to Jesus, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And many commentators say that they are suggesting that Jesus was born of sexual immorality. They don't know who his dad was. It wasn't Joseph. And that phrase, they accuse Jesus of being born of sexual immorality, that phrase echoes the phrase in Deuteronomy 23.2. Jesus, in the eyes of his contemporaries, was a, a mamzer, an illegitimate child just like the Egyptian. Also, Jesus lived his entire life in service to God and to his glory, but in the end, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Irony of ironies, right? The Son of God is accused of blasphemy. That was the reason the religious leaders gave in their mock trial for wanting Jesus put to death. Now, they gave Pilate a completely different reason, but in their own trial, the reason they gave was blasphemy. Jesus was a blasphemer. He had to die. Jesus comes and identifies with the blasphemous Egyptian, which means, thankfully, he identifies with all of us. He comes and identifies with the illegitimate and the sinful and the rebellious and the power-hungry and the self-exalting and the violent and the blasphemer in our hearts. And he is put to death for our blasphemy. Heaping irony upon irony, right? Jesus is pierced for our blasphemy. The cross, in one sense, is the ultimate blasphemy, the Son of God pierced for our transgressions. And yet, through that blasphemy, God's name is not belittled, but exalted. Because it is through Jesus' death that he wins resurrection life and restores wholeness to humanity and offers that to all who call upon his name. His name, which, by the way, has now become the name above every name, and our access to the Father's throne of grace. We call on the name of Jesus. And so Jesus, in laying aside his glory and seeking the Father's glory and identifying with the blasphemous Egyptian, he's actually brought wholeness. He's made peace. By identifying with us and dying for our blasphemy, Jesus has made peace between humanity and God. Peace has truly come through judgment, but not through our judgment, through the judgment of the Son of God on the cross. 
Jesus made peace between Israelites and Egyptians, right? Between Jews and Gentiles. No longer do we have to fight to be top dog. Jesus showed that life does not come through self-exaltation. Jesus brought life through death. He brought glory through humility. See, the death of the Egyptian restored peace in the camp. The death of Christ restores peace with God and among men. Which brings us to our last point, which is that wholeness only comes when we exalt one name. You see, so often we spend our time throwing stones, right? We, we throw stones in politics, we throw stones in culture, we throw stones at our neighbors. We constantly belittle and blame and condemn. We're always pointing outward, saying, you're the Egyptian in our camp. That's, you're the ones causing all this trouble. But wholeness never comes, right? Only more division. Because name-calling is a sign that we are still seeking to secure our own reputation, our own glory. We're trying to prove that we're on the right side. We're on the right team. And you, whoever you are, you're on the wrong side, the wrong team. And as long as we're doing that, right, we still have divided hearts. We still have divided lives. We still have divided relationships. We need to be looking inward. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? James says, is it not that your passions are at war? See, too often as Christians, we keep throwing stones at people. And of course, there's a place for engaging in politics and cultural critique and all the rest. But it's only after I first recognize that there is as much Egyptian in me as there is outside of me. We will only ever find wholeness in community and wholeness in ourselves as we exalt the name of Jesus and not our own. And that only happens when we put to death our self-serving agendas. See, the real war is a war of self-interest. You know, I feel safe when people like me. I feel safe when I've accomplished something. I feel safe when I've made a name for myself. The Egyptian in us says, you've got to perform. You've got to prove yourself. People have to see how great you are. Be careful to dress right or look right or speak right so everybody will know that you're okay. Jesus says something completely different. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, real life comes as we die to sinful self-interest. But we're scared of that, right? We're scared of life through death. We need to remember that in Christ, after death comes resurrection. The death of the Egyptian restored peace in the camp. The death of Christ restores peace with God and among men. The death of sinful self-interest in us restores peace to our souls. Because if anyone loses his life for Christ's sake, then he will find it. Living for our own glory brings conflict, division, both internally, externally. But Jesus came and humbled himself and was put to death And as a result, the Father gave him life and a name, the name above all names. That means that we now find wholeness in community and wholeness in our souls as we put to death our self-serving agendas and exalt the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would would teach us this uh, more and more. Teach us that... That true wholeness, true peace only comes as we exalt the name of Jesus, as we are willing to to set aside our our self-interest, that we are willing to set aside our own agendas, that we are willing to set aside our own reputation, our own name. And we pursue with all our hearts the name of Jesus, His 
glory, his honor, his reputation. Father, we pray that he would be exalted first in our hearts, then in our our lives, then in our communities, that his name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.